Hello. This morning we come to the end of preaching through the book of Exodus. This is part 14 of our Exodus preaching series, having started it back in October last year. We've seen how God has rescued Israel. He's rescued them out of slavery to Egypt, to Pharaoh, and into obedience and into the presence of God. And this morning, I'm going to talk about God's presence, which is a major theme in the Bible, possibly the major theme, because that has been the goal throughout Exodus. That's been the purpose. A key verse which kind of reveals that to us, Exodus 29 verse 46 says, they will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that with a view to, this was the reason, so that I might dwell among them, says God, so that his presence might be with them. Now you might think as we're thinking about God's presence, isn't God everywhere? Isn't that a Christian theology? And yes, he is. And that is a Christian understanding. God is everywhere all the time. Space and time, neither of those things restrain God in the way that, in the way that they do us. But he manifests a particular concentration and intensity of his presence at certain times in history and in certain places. And we might also think, as we think about God's presence, well, what is so special about the presence of God, his being with us? And that is a, a fair question. It's something we talk about a lot. What, what's so special? Now, in one sense, it's a bit like saying, well, why should I care about being with my husband or wife or even close friend? We just are married or we're close friends. It just is a strange question. If you care about someone, you want to be with them. But also, you may agree or not, but the claim of the Bible is that we as humans were made for relationship with God. God made us because he wants relationship with us. Saint Augustine, who is probably the um, most uh, famous African philosopher, possibly the most famous theologian of all time, he said very famously, you made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I've quoted this many times. It's a very helpful way to think. We, as humans, need the presence of God in order to find rest in this world. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in the presence of God. Jim Carrey, well, the, the... American actor once said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. He's kind of onto something. He's saying that our hearts are restless in this world. He just hasn't quite got as far as realizing where the rest is. So, so Augustine knows this to be true. Moses knows it too. We saw last week in this series, um, we looked at the story of the golden calf, that whole debacle. And God says after that, so when that's all done in the next chapter, chapter 33, essentially says to Moses, right, do you know what? You can have the land. I promised the land, promised land to you, but I'm not coming anymore. 
my presence won't go with you. He says in verse 3, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And Moses won't take that. He pleads with God and uh, he says in verse 14, and he, des- he asks God desperately to come with him. And then God says in verse 14, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's okay, my presence will go. But actually, when God says that in verse 14, that's just for Moses. He says singularly, my presence will go with you individually, Moses. Now Moses knows it's not enough. The people that means they all need God's presence. And he pleads again. And in verse 15, he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. He's saying, if, if we don't have your presence, then the, actually, it's crazy what he's saying. He's saying the, the benefits of your salvation, God, the benefits of your rescue are not worth having if we don't have your presence. He knows that we as humans need God's presence. Augustine and Moses are right. And Jim carries on to something as well. And maybe you know it. Maybe you do. You know, yeah, man, I know I need God, God's presence Maybe you kind of know it, but you forget it. Maybe you're not convinced. But if maybe if, that, if that's you, you're not convinced. I don't know, God's presence, is that really the answer? What if it is true that, that today, as you walk into church or whatever you're doing, that the thing you need is God's presence to, to find rest for your soul? And yet, as we come to the end of the story of Exodus today, actually, there's a bit of a disappointing end when you get to the end of the story. So God's presence comes down in the tabernacle. But as we'll see, Moses can't actually go in. He can't, can't go into the presence. It's kind of a bit of a, oh, what? And this is ultimately because of who God is. We get... An incredible revelation of, of who God is in chapter 34 of Exodus, verses 6 and 7. Now this verse, verse 6, is the most quoted verse um, in the rest of the Bible. So the biblical author's favourite verse to quote is this one, this summary of who God is. This is his name. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is God. This is who we have been worshipping this morning. He is abounding in love and he is gracious and he cannot let see, let, leave sin unpunished. So there's a tension there. So we need God's presence. That's where we find rest. And yet we, like Israel, have got sin in us. The the story of the Bible can be summarised as the story of God's presence. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of God's presence through the Bible and how it uh, has, where, where it is in this point in the story. As we see, how is this tension resolved the tension in God who is compassionate and gracious and forgiving of sin and yet at the same time cannot let sin go unpunished
punished, which is an issue when we need God to find rest. And this tension, these issues are resolved in various ways uh, to various degrees throughout Scripture. And we'll look through those, kind of a scan of it, and we'll see where are we now? What's, what's the situation for us now? How is this tension resolved? How can we know the presence of God? And hopefully will help us to understand and appreciate and really marvel at the significance of where we are now and the access that we have to God's presence. We're going to skim through. It's a lot to, to take on, but we're going to go through God's presence in creation, God's presence on Mount Sinai, God's presence at the tabernacle and the temple, in Jesus, in the church, and in the new creation. All these different eras of God's presence throughout the story of the Bible, throughout the story of humanity, um, God's presence with humanity. Or you could say the story of heaven on earth. And all of these have amazing links with one another. We won't have time to go into all of them. Um, but we're going to look through as we see where we are. I'm just going to pray, actually, as, as we kind of get into that. Father God, we ask now that even as I speak you would be moving and your spirit would be at work I pray you'd be drawing us to you in this act of worship as we uh, hear from your word Lord would you be working and moving among us in Jesus name we pray amen so God's create God's presence in creation we started actually preaching with the book of Genesis last year beginning of 2022 um, and the creation narrative is hugely influential um, in the Bible and even in culture today. God creates the world in six, kind of seven days, rests on the seventh. And each day it was good. He saw all that it made and it was good. And on day six, God creates humanity and it was very good. And in Genesis 1 and 2, earth was very good indeed. Heaven, so God's dwelling place is on earth in that moment Adam and Eve walked with God they are in God's pure manifest presence and they have this kind of priestly role they are image bearers of God they bear the image of God and they're told to rule over and maintain order in creation as they obey him and listen to his voice so they're created not as slaves, as, as, as in most other kind of creation narratives at the time, but as priests, as rulers who, who enjoy God and God enjoys being with them, created for relationship with God. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of heaven on earth. Oh, this is heaven on earth. You know, it's the, the clear water on white sands. Maybe it's a book in front of a log fire. It could be Netflix and Ben and Jerry's, whatever it is, heaven on earth. The garden in Eden, that is heaven on earth. That is as good as it gets. And then Genesis 3 and Adam and Eve decide they don't want to just obey God, but they want to be like God and enter sin stage left. The tension that I mentioned has been that's provided by God's character 
being gracious and compassionate, but one who cannot let sin go unpunished, unpunished that, that becomes apparent. And he is merciful and gracious. He doesn't just kind of wipe them out and start again. But sin needs punishing and they can't be in his presence until the sin is dealt with. And the outcome is that they are banished from the garden. And it says that cherubim, angels, guard the entrance to the garden. You cannot now go in to God's presence. So our hearts as humans are restless and now they cannot find rest in him because his presence has been removed. We have been removed from his presence. And then God makes promises to people, notably Abraham, uh, but doesn't actually manifest, kind of concentrate his presence in the same way until we get to Exodus chapter 19, when they've been liberated out of Egypt on Mount Sinai. God's presence there will be brief in this one. God made promises to Abraham to give him and his descendants land and, uh, and to be with them, to give him lots of descendants and to give him lots of land. And at the beginning of the book of Exodus, they have one, they have, Moses has many descendants, but not the other, they're slaves. So God liberates them by grace. That's what we've been looking at in the book of Exodus. You can catch up online if you've missed it. And then uh, God appears to them in the cloud on Mount Sinai, out of slavery and into his presence. This is big progress here. And God descends to the top of the mountain in fire and smoke. And it's, it's possible, it's kind of not massively clear, possible that the people are invited up, but they trembled with fear and they didn't want to go near his presence. And so Moses goes up the mountain through the smoke and the fire and he goes alone and rep represents the people as a priestly mediator between the people and God. I don't know if you've ever had a spiritual experience, a notable in encounter with, with God. You could call it a Sinai experience in that it's kind of powerful. It, it is life-changing, but it's fleeting. This is a relatively fleeting moment uh, at Sinai. Now, I'm, it's not to undermine it or its significance. It's a very significant moment. God's presence has come for the first time really since Eden. But even though there are actually loads of links to the Garden of Eden, it is a far cry from that experience where the people, humanity, are walking with God in a garden. And also at Sinai, the law is given to help restore relationship between God and man. It's an incredible gift that God gives. God has graciously saved them and now he graciously gives them the law to try and reorder creation and get closer to Eden, get back to that. And then we get to the end of Exodus with God's presence in the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple. And God doesn't just come to the top of the mountain, but he comes right down to the people. There's lots of chapters on the tabernacle in the book of Exodus with details of how to build it. And then it's all repeated when it is built. Then if you tried reading, it's basically Exodus 25 with a little gap right to the end. 15 chapters, 10 chapters really. It can be hard work 
to, to get through because you think, what is this? Why does this matter? But it's all got meaning. It's all got purpose. I'll try to kind of tease out a little bit of that in a moment. And chapter 40 at the end is a summary of everything that's gone. But before, interesting, before Moses, uh, before that s- summary, Moses has inspected everything that's made that, for the tabernacle. And in verse 43 of uh, chapter 39, says, Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. This is a pointer to creation story. It's like he's saying, he has seen all that has been made and it was good. I saw all that it was made and it was good. So let's explain it a bit. The tabernacle, right? This, this tabernacle is split into three zones. I'll put some pictures up to help uh, kind of visualize and understand it. So there's the outer courts around the outside. Um, and then within that, there is the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And within the tabernacle, there are two zones. There's the holy place and then through cur- more curtains is the most holy place. Each zone within uh, the tabernacle and the courts are accessed through a curtain. And this, when the tabernacle is kind of finally constructed and put up, is an exciting moment. It's the moment that we have been waiting for where God has come down and his presence is right there in the midst of the people. And we'll read um, Exodus 40 from verse 16 to, to the end um, as, as we go through. This is uh, the big kind of moment we've been waiting for. Uh, and as, as I read, I'll kind of explain um, and tease out some of the details. Verse 16, Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars and set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. He took the tablets of the covenant law, the Ten Commandments, and placed them in the ark. Attached the poles to the ark and put the atonement cover over it or the mercy seat over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. So this is the ark. This is the the hot point of the presence of God. And they they have the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets in them. Later they'll have a few other bits. This is where heaven meets earth. And you've got the mercy seat, the atonement cover on top of it, which represents the grace of God. And, and yet on, there, on the mercy seat are two cherubim, again, guarding the access. And then the curtain is hung as well. And on the curtain into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is, are again, two cherubim guarding the presence of God, just like Eden. Then Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. This is the table of, uh, of the presence. And on the table are 12 loaves of bread, which represent the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And the bread kind of it represents God's provision. God has provided for the people of Israel. And at the same time, it's a bit like an offering to God. Also kind of 
point that there will be meals eaten in the presence of God. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the, tab- set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord as the Lord commanded him. That phrase, as the Lord commanded him, by the way, seven times we get that through these verses. Another point to creation and to the completion of the tabernacle. And uh, these lampstands, uh, they look like the tree of life from the garden, the way they're supposed to be made. And they serve a practical purpose in that this is the only light source into the tent. Um, And also they represent the, the light of God's presence that shine onto the bread, the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 26, Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. This altar permanently, night and day, burns incense uh, incense up to God, which this incense represents the prayer of God's people that are being presented up to him, rising up to him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Uh, So that's everything inside the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. This is basically a barbecue where the meat um, is sacrificed and cooked, offered and cooked. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar as the Lord commanded Moses. This probably serves both a practical and a ritual purpose as they wash themselves. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. So this is the big moment we've been waiting for. The tabernacle is constructed. Heaven on earth is in the Holy of Holies. So this is God's actual presence, just like the Garden of Eden. You can think of it like an embassy in a way. So you kind of, if you go to the British embassy in Egypt or something, I assume there's one in Egypt, it's kind of, you're said to be standing on British soil. You are in Britain in, in some way, and it's, it's kind of like that, in that you go into the Holy of Holies through those, the, the, the curtains, the most holy place. It's like heaven's embassy. You are in heaven in that moment. And it's right there, this place, in their midst, but then no one's actually allowed to go in it. That's the way the story, the, the story finishes in Exodus. Moses could not go in. It's like um, if you've ever kind of put up a, a bouncy castle and it takes a while kind of to inflate, you've got a whole like, row of kids. It's like doing that and saying, no, you can't go on it. I'm putting it up, but you can't go on. We always have to hold them off to the moment where it's fully inflated. Um, but it's kind of this painful, like, what? What's it there for? 
And the issue remains the same, that God is merciful. He's, I mean, he's, he's manifesting his presence in a little box in a tent. That's, that's his mercy. But sin cannot go unpunished. And that's where Exodus ends. The book of Leviticus kind of solves that problem. So, so in, in short, what would happen, as, as is kind of revealed through Exodus, if you're an Israelite, you want to come into the presence of God, you would come through those first set of curtains into the temple courts and bring a sacrifice, an offering, that would be costly to you. It would be a calf or lamb, goat, a dove or a pigeon, um, maybe a, a grain offering, uh, depending on the purpose and how rich you were. And you'd bring that to be offered. It'd have to be without blemish. So you'd go into the outer courts and that ultimately is as far as you get. And the priests, the priest would act as mediator for you and they would inspect the offering, the, the sacrifice. So they're not inspecting you. They know that you have sin. They're inspecting the sacrifice. And, uh, and then that would be you. You would then leave. The priest would slaughter the sacrifice uh, and then sprinkle some of the blood on the tent and cook, cook the meat as an ar- and the aroma would rise to God. Uh, and having sprinkled the blood on the tent, it's kind of to say sacrifice has been made because blood has spilled and only because of that. They can now go in to the, the, the tent of meeting, the holy place. Uh, but even the priest can't go any further than that. Even they can't go into the most holy place apart from the high priest. Only one person and even them, they can only go in one day of the year on the day of atonement. So you have the Holy of Holies, but it is for one person on one day of the year. That was huge reverence for the tabernacle. What a gift this is. The presence of God. And yet, cherubim still guard the presence. God dwells in their midst, but you can't actually go very close. The tabernacle and and then the temple, the same later, they they show both God's proximity and his distance, both his accessibility and his separateness. And that's where the Leviticus, the book of Moses really ends. I'm going to jump to the new creation very briefly and then come back to God's presence in Jesus and in the church because the tabernacle points to the new creation, to the new Eden. And the, the, the new creation points back to the tabernacle as well. On that day, this is really when it gets back to Eden. On that day, heaven will truly come to earth. Not just in an ark, in a small section of a tent or a temple. Heaven will come to earth. Revelation 21 verse 2 and 3. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is where we're going. That is what it was like in Eden. Ultimately, it's not what it was like in the tabernacle. We are not there yet. So let's look at God's presence in Jesus. God's presence is still not really accessible regularly for most people in the tabernacle. That's where we come back to 
So it's kind of enter Jesus stage right. He comes as God in the flesh. Jesus is God's presence on earth. And he comes as the tabernacle. John 1, 14. The word that is God himself, the second member of the Trinity, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. He is heaven on earth. But he's also come to do a work. He has come to rescue all humanity out of slavery to sin and death and into worship and into his presence. He, as God, he knows that he needs to intervene for us to have his presence. And so he comes in the flesh and ultimately he becomes both the priest and the sacrifice. He becomes the offering, the sacrifice that we present. And so he is inspected, not us, but he is found to be spotless, even as we have sin. And he is the only priest we now need to mediate between us and God. And he, as the sacrifice is offered, not day and night, time after time, once and for all, and as he is the curtain that guards the presence of God from us, is torn in two. And the cherubim no longer stand guard, but a new and living way has been opened up for us to go into God's presence despite our sin. And the tension of God's compassion and grace alongside his commitment to punish sin is perfectly displayed on the cross where wrath and mercy meet. He is indeed compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. The thing that you and I need to find rest, that is his presence. The thing we need for our weary souls to find rest. But the thing we can't have because of our sin has been made available because the spotless lamb of God has taken the punishment that our sins deserve. It is glorious, this gospel. But then he rises again to defeat the power of death and ascends back to heaven. The one who became the temple has left, but the presence of God has not left, which takes us to where we stand today with God's presence in the church. Remarkably, Wonder of wonders. The manifest, profound presence of God is no longer in a tent or a temple or even in the flesh of the word of God, in Jesus, in that sense, but in the church. God's presence is found there. Where is the temple now? There, there isn't one. Hasn't been one since AD 70, because the church is the temple. Ephesians 2, 21 to 22. This is remarkable. When we've done this hard work to understand the importance of the tabernacle and God's presence, these words are just incredible. In him, that is in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a, whole, a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built to, together 
to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The, t- the church has become God's dwelling place. Not the building, right? So not an ambulance station or a primary school, uh, what was an old ambulance station in Chichester, a primary school uh, in Bognar or a secondary school in Haven. The people of God. So God's address is no longer the tabernacle or the temple. It is the church. That is his residence. Heaven's embassy is the church. That's how and why we can pray for God to be with us, because he has said that he is with the church. And it's true of individual Christians. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Your body is now the most holy place. Who is in you, Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. What a comfort. Imagine the reverence that that the people of Israel would have had for the tabernacle, for the materials that made up the the tabernacle. We should have that reverence for our own bodies because they are the new tabernacle, the new temple. It's true individually. It is most evidently true corporately that God's presence is in the church. So when we meet together, as we are and have been this morning, and when unbelievers come in, it should be clear by the work of the Spirit that God is really among us. 1 Corinthians 14, 25, and talking about spiritual gifts, it says they, unbelievers, will come in and fall down and worship, exclaiming, God is really among you. The presence of God is here of all places it is in the church. What an incredible time we live in. Jesus has made a way for us to be in God's presence. There are no cherubim guarding the way. And we now have access. We have become his temple, his dwelling place. So where does your heart find rest? This is where our restless hearts will find rest in the church, the church of Christ. Now, my prayer is let's not just be God's presence or have God's presence in a true and objective way, but let's know, let's enjoy the presence of God with us. Let us not take for granted or not be in awe of the fact that his Holy Spirit chooses to dwell among us. This is where heaven meets earth. Even as we await the fulfilment of it all when the heavenly city comes down to earth. For now, God's church is God's temple. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this amazing story. We thank you, Jesus, that you have made a way for us to go in to the presence of God. You have become the perfect sacrifice once and for all. You you have opened up a new and living way. I pray, God, that you would help us as your people not to take for granted that you have now made us the temple of the Holy Spirit built together, but we would marvel and enjoy the presence of God among us. I pray for your spirit to be poured out 
powerfully and evidently among us. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.